six. We're going to continue our study of the armor of God. This is a subsection, remember, of our study of spiritual warfare. I want you to read with me once again from verse 10 of chapter 6 of Ephesians through verse 18. Paul writes to us, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now remember, we talked about the devil's schemes some weeks ago. I think it's incredibly important for all of us to remind ourselves, to remind one another that the devil is continuously scheming. He's continuously coming at us. If you are a Christian, you are involved in the warfare. You are a target of the devil. If you profess the name of Jesus, it is the devil's goal to discourage you, to defeat you. It's his goal to undermine your faith. He is constantly scheming. There is no let up. He doesn't know the meaning of the phrase time out. He is unrelenting. And so Paul talks to us here that we need God's strength that we could stand. You understand what it means to be strengthened to stand? Throughout nearly all of his letters of instruction to the churches, Paul prays for the churches that the churches would be strengthened with the strength of God, essentially so that they might stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil is double-minded. He is... The only thing that is consistent about the devil is his inconsistency. He'll tell you one thing, and as soon as he's got you turned, you're turned that way, then he'll come and tell you just the opposite and turn you that way, because he wants you going like this. And so he's constantly scheming to discourage, to deceive, to defeat us. And we need to remember that. He's always Sticking thoughts in our head, always blowing in our ear, always putting critical thoughts, seeking to undermine us, seeking to divide us. And he is unrelenting. Do, do you understand what I'm talking about? He is unrelenting. And so Paul instructs us to be strong in the Lord with his strength, that we're to pull on the full armor of God so that we can stand against this devil's schemes. And he goes on and he's, he reminds us our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We're not battling people. We're not battling institutions. We're battling demonic forces. We're battling an evil empire. And I'm not talking about Star Wars. There are very real demonic presence in this world that is seriously afflicting people, keeping people in bondage, and attacking the church. And beloved, we are not on the defense. We are on the offense. Let me remind you, we are on the offense. We are on the offense. It's not the Lord's will that the gates of hell prevail against the church. It's the Lord's will that the church prevail 
and that the church kick in the gates of hell. The enemy has been defeated. It's yet up to us to live out, to carry out that defeat and to experience the victory and to bring about the victory in terms of everyday living in our lives, to express the victory that God has already achieved for us. So we're not battling against flesh and blood, against, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, stand. Stand. Stand firm then, he says, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Be alert. Be alert. Stay awake. Because the devil not only is a roaring lion, but he's also masquerading as an angel of light. He's always coming to deceive us. So we're in a battle. We're in a battle. Satan, again, remember, is a very powerful enemy. He's a very formidable enemy. He is second in power only to God himself. Our resources in and of ourselves are not adequate. Our own willpower our psychology, our common sense, all that we generate on our own is not sufficient in terms of resource to stand against the assaults of the devil. Paul instructs us we need two elements. We need God's strength and we need God's armor. These two elements will enable us to stand firm against the devil, against the schemes of the devil. Now we've been talking about the armor of God. We talked two weeks ago, we began to talk about the armor, we discussed the truth, the belt of truth. What is the belt of truth? Now, not everybody wants now. The Word of God, right? The Word of God is the belt of truth. Now, it's amazing to me, but still there are some people who are writing and calling and expressing the frustration. They say, well, you've told us what the belt of truth is, but you haven't told us how to put it on. You haven't been listening. Let me go over it one more time for those of you that may have not paid attention. This is very, very important. The belt of truth, we said, is foundational. It is fundamental. You must have the belt of truth on. We can't pick and choose which parts of the armor we're going to wear. We must wear the full armor. You can't say, well, I'm just going to put on the helmet of salvation and not the belt of truth or the breastplate of righteousness. And a lot of people are trying to do that. They're picking and choosing. You've got to have the whole armor of God. If you don't, Satan's going to eat, eat you up and spit you out in little pieces. You're going to be no good to the kingdom of God. Your life's going to be miserable. 
So the belt of truth is the word of God. It is foundational, it's fundamental. That's the very first piece you put on. Remember the Roman soldier, that was the first piece of equipment he put on. And what did it do? It girded him about. In a sense that all the loose ends were tucked in. Now how do you put on the belt of truth? Well, you study the word of God. You study the word of God. You read the word of God. It's not just a matter, however, of studying and reading the Word of God, apprehending the Word of God. It's allowing the Word of God to apprehend us. Is the Word of God real? Do God's unchanging, timeless principles gird my life about? Do God's principles set forth in this book over and over and over, do those principles govern my thinking, govern my attitudes? Do they determine the way that I walk? That's how you put on the belt of truth. It's not just reading the Bible. It's reading the Bible, studying the Bible, so that the Bible can apprehend your life, can get a hold of your life. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. He said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Greek word he uses for mind is nous, meaning that which is the conscious part of our life. Be consciously cha changed in your thinking. How can we do that if the word of God doesn't, doesn't apprehend our mind, doesn't govern and determine how we think? As a man thinks, so is he, the Proverbs say. So we've got to put on the belt of truth. The next piece of armor we looked at was the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. Now remember, Paul's order in, in, in laying out the armor is significant. He's not random. The belt is foundational. Next goes on the, the breastplate of righteousness. What do we say is the breastplate of righteousness? Is that our own self-righteousness? No, it's not. Is it imputed righteousness? Is it the righteousness that God gives us? Do we put that on? That's the breastplate. No. What is the breastplate of righteousness that we put on? Practical righteousness. Now remember, practical righteousness is only possible because God has made us righteous because of the imputed righteousness he's given us by faith in Christ. Remember Romans chapter 3, verse 21? So God has declared us righteous by faith in Jesus. But that's not the breastplate we put on. That only makes possible the practical righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. But what makes the breastplate of righteousness, what makes practical righteousness a reality is obedience. As I walk in obedience, as I am determined to live a holy life, now the word of God is apprehending me. My life is encompassed about by the truth. I'm tied in with the belt of truth. And as I determine to live my life out on the basis of what the truth is, in holiness, in obedience, I am automatically putting on the breastplate of righteousness. I will be protected. My heart, my mind, 
my will, my intellect, my emotional life will be protected by the breastplate of righteousness. There will be no access to the enemy to attack, to do damage. And thirdly, we looked this morning, the third piece of armor, and these are the shoes of peace. The third piece has to do, has reference to the feet, figuratively speaking. Paul, remember, is looking at the Roman soldier and he's serving the armor that the soldier has on and he's making analogies to the kinds of things that we need to be involved in, in terms of protection. Now remember, the armor is not literal physical armor that we're talking about. We're talking about spiritual armor, internal armor. But it helps with, with the analogy to kind of picture it. Now he looks at the Roman soldier, and the Roman soldier has on various pieces of armor. He looks down at his feet, and he sees these, these very special kinds of shoes or sandals that the Roman soldier wears. And it speaks to a number of issues. Now the sandals that the Roman soldier would wear weren't, they weren't big army combat boots. They were sandals, they had a thick sole. They were tied to his foot with straps. The straps came up halfway up his leg. They were firmly held onto his feet. The soles, the bottom of the soles were studded. There were nails embedded in the, in the, in the sole. This allowed for traction. You remember, the Roman soldier was trained to defend six square feet of space. He was to stand firm. It helps to have traction when you're trying to stand firm. And those nails or those, those studs allowed him to stand firm in that close hand-to-hand -hand combat so he wouldn't slip and slide all over the place. The sandals also uh, provided protection for his feet for when they would march, they would travel over all sorts of terrain. They would encounter various kinds of traps, uh, uh, even in present military experience. If you were in uh, Vietnam or uh, in some of the conflicts um, in jungles and so forth, they, uh, the enemy would dig, dig uh, uh, pits and, and uh, sharpen sticks as traps, you'd fall on them. Well, that same thing would go uh, for those who would be fighting against the Romans, then they could expect those things. But the soles of these sandals were thick enough to protect their feet. Not only did he have traction, not only could he stand firm, but he also had protection. Thirdly, the sandals were lightweight, which allowed him mobility. He wasn't immobilized. He didn't have heavy, heavy boots that he could not function. The Roman army was known for the speed with which they could attack. And so we see that the Roman soldier has on a certain kind of sandal, and Paul is going to allude to that sandal, and I think to these three elements, if you will, when he talks about the third piece of armor that you and I put on. Now, today, we have shoes for every conceivable activity, don't we? I mean, we have dress shoes, we have dress up shoes, we have dress down shoes. We have tennis shoes, we have the pump, we have uh, basketball shoes, 
We have running shoes. We have more running shoes than you can possibly imagine. I love to go into the Foot Locker or one of these clothing, these foot shoe stores, and I just get all these shoes arrayed on the wall, and I'll say, what's that one for? What's that one for? What's the difference between that one and that one? I mean, it's amazing the incredible differences between these shoes in the minds of the manufacturer and the salesman. <laughs> I just marvel at what they've come up with. But we have, we have shoes for every conceivable activity, and Paul picks on this idea of the Roman soldier having his feet shod or equipped, prepared with a certain kind of sandal, and he applies that to us. And we are very really to be prepared. Now he uses the, the analogy of the feet. We're not literally talking about our feet, but the idea is that we're to be ready. We're to be ready. We're to be equipped. Have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes through the gospel of peace. We've talked about truth. We've talked about righteousness as being marks of our life that are really protection, armor for us. There's a third element, peace. Not only do we be armed with the truth, armed with righteousness, but we're to be armed with peace, with peace. And so our feet are to be fitted, so to speak, or made ready, equipped for warfare and for victory through the gospel of peace. You know that word gospel means good news? You're aware of that? It means good news. Doesn't good news bring peace? I mean, you can be in turmoil. You can be uh, discouraged, fearful. Good news can bring peace, can't it? It can literally transform us. It can make our lives peaceful. And so, but we're to be equipped. We're to be made ready through the gospel of peace. Now, how, just how exactly do we put on these shoes? How exactly are we fitted? How exactly are we made ready through the gospel of peace? There's a a threefold perspective, I think, that's important for us uh, to include in our life. The first is this. We are to realize, if you're a Christian, you are to realize that you have peace with God. You have peace with God. That is a very good thing. Isn't it good to have peace with God? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting being a pastor, I've talked to lots and lots of people, and uh, periodically you hear this phrase, well, I, I want to make my peace with God. I don't think it's so much of a matter of us making our peace with God as it is having God make peace with us. We need God to make peace with us. The Bible teaches very clearly that God's Guns of judgment are trained on sin. And he's going to judge sin once and for all. He judges it on the cross in Christ. 
But there's going to be one final judgment of sin. And those who have not found shelter in Christ, sin is going to be judged in them. I mean, God's trained his guns on sin. And if you happen to be in the way, if you happen to be associated with sin, when that judgment falls, you're going down too. But if you're a Christian, you put your faith in Jesus, you have peace with God. That is so important to understand. That is so important to grasp. I have peace with God. God is not mad at me. God is not angry with me. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. I have peace with God. When you have peace with God, you realize that, you grasp it, you treasure it, you hold on to it, you remind yourself of that. That does three things for you. It gives you the ability to stand firm. It protects you, and it gives you mobility. The enemy can't immobilize you, because he wants to immobilize. When you realize, I have peace with God. I have peace with God. Now, you can't say that except that you put your faith in Jesus. Jesus is the only avenue to the Father. He's the only avenue to having peace with God. But if you've done that, you have that peace. That peace, when you realize it, that gives you the ability to stand. That strengthens you, protects you, and gives you mobility. You're not immobilized. You're not lacking in that area. A couple of verses, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. Isaiah tells us, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Jesus took God's wrath that we might have peace with God. In Acts chapter 10, verse 36, same idea. Peter is preaching to Cornelius. He's preaching effectively to the Gentiles through Cornelius. Verse 34, when then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. This is the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Underline that last phrase, who is Lord of all. God sent a good news. He sent a message of good news, a, good, a message of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Do you remember when Jesus, the night Jesus was born, and the angels appeared in the sky and sang, and the shepherds heard them. What did the shepherds hear? What was the message? Do you remember? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. The angels were saying, hey, we've got good news. We've got good news for mankind. 
Reconciliation and peace with God is possible. This is the message, and Jesus proclaimed that message through his entire life, death, and resurrection, and he proclaims it still today through the church. Peace with God is possible. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul, in the whole of chapter 4, has been discussing this reality of being justified by faith. Uses Abraham as the illustration. And then he comes to the first verse of chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Period. We have peace with God. You say, well, how long does that peace last? How long do we have peace with God? Forever. It says it right there in the Greek. Can you read it? It's in the perfect tense. I have peace with God. Perfect tense, period. That's it. I've got it. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that nice to know? It's not going to evaporate? I have peace with God. We need that. We need that. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul writes this. He says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, dwell in Christ, and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We have peace with God. We have peace with God. That ought to enable us to stand. That ought to strengthen us and protect us. And certainly give us mobility when we grasp the magnitude of what that means, having peace with God. Having peace with God is important. Because we have peace with God, we can have the peace of God. We can have the peace of God. We can be at peace within ourselves. That's the second of this three-pronged perspective of peace in our life. We can have the peace of God guarding our minds and our hearts. Romans 8.28 Greatest verse in the Bible, in my estimation. Greatest verse in the Bible. There is no greater verse in the Bible, to my mind, to my understanding, than Romans 8, 28. That's the greatest promise. That's the great safety net. And we know. And we know that in most things... No? No? No, Mrs. Knudsen, that's not right? Wrong. That in some things, all things, and just the good things, no, all things, God is working for my good because I love him, because I've been called according to his purpose. I don't know about you, but I, I rehearse that verse every day. Every day I take refuge in that verse, in the truth of what that verse has to say to me. I have to make decisions every day. Decisions about my own life, my family, decisions about the life and the direction of this church. 
I face awesome things. And sometimes the enemy wants to come and immobilize me. And sometimes he does. Sometimes I don't know which way to go. Oh! And God just encourages me. He says, make a decision. Make a decision. Make the best, the wisest decision you know how to make. And trust me. Trust me. Boy. And I remember 828, and it just brings peace into my life. That brings peace into my life. I said, wait a minute. God, that's right. I have peace with you. We're not at odds. You're not holding out on me. You're not trying to deceive me. I remind myself, I rehearse with this reality, and then I say, okay, that's right now. Okay, I can make a decision here. I can get on with it. And I know that you know my heart. You know that I can't do anything from a perfect motive. I'm going to make the best decision on how to make, and you will use it for my good. And that brings peace into my life. Allows me to stand firm. Protects me. It gives me mobility. I'm no longer immobilized with fear, with anxiety, with doubt. Romans 8, 28. I love it. There's another famous passage in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. We're not going to read it. You read it on your own. Meditate on it. But most of us are familiar with it. Jesus says, don't be anxious for anything. And he goes down this list and he says, you know, he says, you have all these concerns and all these cares. You're worried about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear and so forth and this and that. What's the bottom line? What's the principle? God knows. We can entrust our life into his hands. That's the principle. I can trust you, Lord. I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to be afraid. I have these insecurities. I have these inadequacies. These things that I struggle with. But Lord, I turn to you. What's the most important thing that Jesus says? What's the bottom line in that passage in verse 33? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That was the word this morning. Don't look at the waves. Don't look at the wind. And we know the circumstances are there. But don't let them distract. The enemy wants to distract. And the moment we're distracted, the moment we're not seeking first God's kingdom, his righteousness, what happens? We're not at peace. We don't have the peace of God in our life. God wants us to, to, to be armed with peace. Look over Philippians chapter 4. Another tremendous passage. Philippians chapter 4. Actually, back, look at chapter 4, verse 4. Look at, back up a couple of verses here. This is such a great passage. I'm going to read the whole thing. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord most of the time. Why are we only rejoicing most of the time then? If he says always. Rejoice in the Lord always. In fact, he's so excited, he says, I'll say it again. Rejoice. Explanation mark. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. 
He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Sometimes I think we pass over that last, that little sentence, the Lord is near. He's not far away, he's near. Now we know that he lives in us by the Holy Spirit. But being human beings, we, 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 we're comforted by knowing that someone is near. Isn't that true? The Lord is near. And when someone is near, though you might be afraid or be tempted to be afraid or intimidated or anxious, isn't it comforting to know that the Lord is near? Rejoice in the Lord. Don't be afraid. Rejoice in the Lord. He says, do not be anxious about anything. The Lord is near. There's no need to be anxious. He's got everything under control. He knows exactly what's going on. It may look like it's out of control to you. You're to be mindful of one thing, God's kingdom, his righteousness. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious for anything. He says, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. Thank you, Father. An attitude of thankfulness. An attitude of... Someone came up to me and said, how are you this morning? I said, how should I be thankful? I'm thankful. I'm thankful. I'm thankful. When I pray, I always pray with thanksgiving. When I petition God, I always petition with thanksgiving. I'm thankful for his constant grace and protection. I'm thankful for the wisdom and the direction, the light, the insight. I'm thankful for his word. I'm thankful for his discipline, his training. When I pray for my wife in the morning, I say, God, thank you for my wife. Thank you for protecting her today. I petition him for protection, but I also thank him in advance for the protection that I'm confident that he will provide. I trust him, so I thank him already. I don't pray from insecurity. I pray from security with thankfulness. I petition him not from insecurity, but from security with thankfulness. When I pray for you, God, thank you for the church. Thank you for your protection and for your guidance. Thank you, Father, that your hand is on the church. Thank you, Father, for your blessing of the church today. Thank you, Father, for calling to mind the things that all of us need to hear and remember today. Thank you, Father. I'm confident in him. I'm trusting in him. So we can pray, we can bring our petitions with thanksgiving, not out of fear, not out of intimidation, not out of worry. Don't be anxious, he's near. He's near. And then he says this great thing. And the peace of God, the peace of God which transcends all understanding, which humanly speaking we, we can't comprehend. The peace of God. Just maybe, just maybe, it might guard your heart and mind. <laughs> no, it will. It will guard your heart and mind in Christ. It will guard you. 
Because you're at peace with God, you can experience the peace of God. That only ensures the fact that you could stand firm. Stand firm. It ensures your protection. It ensures your mobility. That you not be immobilized by the attacks of the devil. You're protected. You can stand firm. The peace of God will guard your mind and your heart in Christ. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious. Know that you have peace with God. And know the peace of God. This leads us to the third aspect of this threefold peace. And this is not only peace with God, not only peace within, but peace with others. Remember, this book is a book about healing. Primarily a book about healing of relationships. It's a book about reconciliation, restoration. God wants the relationship between himself and man healed. He wants peace. He wants us to have peace with him. He wants us to know his peace. He wants reconciliation and healing within ourselves. The relationship that I have with myself. And he wants also healing and restoration in the relationship that I have with my neighbor. He wants peace in that relationship. I should be ready, fitted with peace. Peace should mark my life. With him, with myself, and with my neighbor. Look at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Who can we repay evil for evil? Not even one person? What about that one person that just gets your goat? Can I get that one person? Just one time, God. Can I get him back just once? Can I just play tit for tat one time? You ever had somebody just catch you off guard and they say something to you and you went, and you look for an opportunity to get him back? You guys don't do that, do you? <laughs> do not repay anyone evil for evil. But, no. But, but, no. Just, no. Not anyone evil for evil. Don't you just want to say, but? <laughs> we always want to make an exception, don't we? Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Do you know how hard that is? Yes. How do you possibly expect me to live that out? First of all, know that you're at peace with God. Second of all, know the peace of God. You don't have to let people know where your goat is tied up. One day that goat will be untied and will be gone forever. Won't that be glorious? Can't you hardly wait for that day? But until that day, we've got to be on our alert. We've got to be on our guard. Peace. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, 
live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you. You don't look at what the other person is or isn't doing and let that determine what you're going to do. Doesn't matter what they are or aren't doing. As far as it depends on you, you live at peace. Well, you're not being very nice to me, so I'm not going to be very nice to you. So there. As far as it depends on you, you live at peace. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Let the peace of God guard your mind and heart. And you will be able to be at peace with everyone, regardless of what they say and or do to you. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Oh, all right. God's going to get them. Hallelujah. Get them, God. I'll be at peace, but you get them. God, God wants to get them. Do you know that? God wants to get them all right. He doesn't want to get them the way you want him to get them. How do you suppose God wants to get them? He wants to save them. And guess who he wants to use? Yeah, he wants to use you and me. He says, don't take revenge, be at peace. Leave room for God's wrath, if necessary. He says, on the contrary, here's what you do. Here's your role. If your enemy is hungry, oh, God. You don't mean that. I've been waiting for my enemy to be hungry so I could gloat. So I could say, ha, finally, you're getting yours. No. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, you give him something to drink. In so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. What's that mean? Man, he's going to undergo conviction. You kill him with kindness. You can only do that if the peace of God is guarding your mind and heart because you already know you're at peace with God. You're not anxious. He is near. You're unruffled. They can dig all around to find your goat. Doesn't matter. You can say it's tied up over there. Go get it but I'm going to be at peace with you. I'm going to be at peace with you. And we make that decision internally to be at peace with others, regardless of what they do or don't do. doesn't matter. What you do or don't do doesn't determine the course that my life is set upon. Peace marks my life. Just as truth and righteousness mark my life. Peace. Colossians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Actually, back into verse 12, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. 
Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. As members of one body, you were called to peace. Peace. We should be ready, equipped with peace. Not caught unawares. Be at peace. At peace with God, peace with ourselves, at peace with one another. Remember, Satan is the false peacemaker. He is the false peacemaker. He is one who comes and offers all manner of pseudo solutions for peace. Everything from alcohol, drugs, sex, every kind of perversion to exotic cultic experiences and practices. People are hungering for peace. And they're looking for it all in the wrong places. All in the wrong places. Jesus is that source. The scary thing about the peace that Satan offers is that it seems to work, but for a short period of time. I can't tell you how many times people have come and justified some kind of sinful behavior, some kind of disobedience, some kind of selfishness, and they've said, well, I have a peace about it. I said, that's not God's peace. The only way that you can be sure that it's God's peace is if you've got the belt of truth on and the breastplate of righteousness. You can't have real, genuine, true peace unless, first of all, there's truth and righteousness in place. Then it's possible to have that kind of peace. It's not built on lies and error. There is a false peace, and it does work for a season. But, but grief... Guilt and chaos are near at hand with it. And it won't be long before those things are upon us again. Beware of the false peace that Satan seeks to bring. He perverts the scripture. He'll twist them. He'll take normal, natural appetites and pleasures that God has given us and blessed us with, and he'll twist them and pervert them. And he'll offer some kind of temporary peace, truth and righteousness, then peace. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, with its threefold message of peace, enables us to stand firm, gives us protection and mobility just like the Roman soldier had, which he desperately needed as he stood in battle. We're in a warfare. We need God's armor. We need to be at peace with God, have the peace of God, and be at peace with one another. Not give the enemy a foothold in our life. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we praise you this morning. Lord, we thank you once again for your word, for it is rich. 
I thank you, Lord, for the strengthening that you do in my own heart, my own life. I pray, Lord, that that by your spirit, the things that we have thought, the things that we've looked at and meditated upon this morning would be real to us. Lord, I pray that you would ensure that we put on the belt of truth, that we put on the breastplate of righteousness, and that we prepare ourselves, that we make ourselves ready through the gospel of peace, that peace mark our lives. Lord, bless the congregation. I thank you for them. I pray that you would keep and guard them all week, Lord. Use them mightily. Lord, bless all of our efforts to distribute tracts, to share with people, to live our lives for your glory. Father, I commend the body to you in Jesus' name. Amen.